It's the 2nd of April of the year of our salvation, 2007. It's Holy Monday, the Monday of Holy Week, and you're back for another podcast with Father Z. St. Augustine of Hippo joins us as our guest today. We'll have one of his sermons, a sermon that he preached on the Passion of the Lord in 412. I also have some comments about the sign of the cross. distinctions between the different goals or the contexts. 
and Augustine himself went over these sermons and he had a, a real uh, real strong understanding of the purpose of these things and uh, what kind of impact they had. He obviously went back over his works. As a matter of fact, in a letter uh, dated toward the end of his life of uh, 428, it's a letter, letter 234, uh, Augustine said, uh, Still to be done is the revision of the letters and of the discourses to the people, the tractatus populares, which the Greek called homilies. And so what we're talking about with these sermons are sermons to people, the tractatus populares. And Augustine knew that a lot of people uh, depended on his words and they wanted to hear what he had to say, and so he saw to it that they were written down, uh, both for wider distribution uh, beyond Hippo or wherever it was that he happened to be preaching, and also for preservation for future readers. And he said in his exposition, that's, remember that's another word for a sermon, his exposition on the psalm, on Psalm number 51, he said, Since the brethren like not only to gather up my words with their ears and in their hearts, but also to put them down in writing, I must keep in mind not only my listeners, but future readers as well. So what Augustine was doing was creating a legacy for the future and making sure that his things could be distributed. Now, how did he make sure to do that? Well, Augustine had what are called notarii. They're monumenses is another way to talk about them. Stenographers is what they were. And he had them uh, there present when he would speak, and they would write down everything that he said, and they were highly, highly accurate. And Augustine himself, in understanding the importance of his own words and how they would be written down and spread around, he he did a lot of preparation before his preaching, but remember, he was a highly trained orator in classical rhetoric, and he was able to work without prepared texts, uh, other than just the scroll of scripture which he held on his lap as he sat in his bishop, bishop's chair before the people. Remember, the, the scripture would be sung, and then the the one who had sung it would bring the scroll over to the man as he sat there in his chair. And Augustine then would open up the scroll of scriptures on his lap and he would begin to explain. And this was particularly his technique in homilies or sermons where he, he began to preach in a series, like exposing day by day by day by day, working his way through the scriptures of the Psalms. And he, so he would sit with the scroll of, script, scroll of scripture on his lap. But he, as a great orator, he would have done his uh, preparation ahead of time and then would have known exactly how he wanted to frame it uh, for his people when he began to talk. Now today's selection is from Augustine's Sermon 218c on the Lord's Passion, which is dated to about the year 412. And the tone of Augustine's defense of the passion and defense of the cross suggests to us that he is responding to uh, attacks being made uh, on the Christian faith about the cross, attacks uh, or criticisms mocking how Christian, Christians worshipped a God who could die. Now remember that the sack of Rome had taken place in 410, and it had stirred up a lot of criticism uh, on the part of, of pagans and 
Manichees and so forth, attacks on Christian beliefs. Uh, they were beginning to you know, blame the Christian for the Christians for the terrible disaster that had happened when Alaric sacked Rome. And a lot of the people had fled from Italy down into North Africa, bringing with them their bitterness and their, and their ideas. And Augustine uh, took this so seriously that he preached about it, and he was also going to write the City of God on themes just exactly like the ones that you know he approaches here. And uh, so we have this beautiful sermon, which is uh, sermon number 218c, and it's also sometimes qual called the Sermo Guelferbitanus three, and that's because it's in a collection of sermons called the Collectio Guelferbitana, and it's a collection of, of works and manuscripts and so forth. But uh, the scholars usually refer to this as as Sermon 218c. And I'm going to give you a, a, a translation of the whole sermon, not just the little excerpt that we have here in the breviary, because it's very interesting to listen to his thought, and the sermon really isn't that long. But what you'll want to do is you'll want to listen to how he, uh, how Augustine appeals to reason to confute the critics of the Incarnation, the pagans and the Manichees and so forth, who are mocking Christians for worshipping a God who could die. And also how he uses the tools of oratory I talked about in another podcast, about how he answers questions of who and what and where and why. And also uh, how Augustine treats what we uh, now call the communicatio idiomatum, that is, that because Christ is one person, we can say that when Christ died in his humanity, we can still say that God died, because we don't split Christ into two persons. The same person died, who is both God and man. So we can also say that God had died, even though we understand that he died in his humanity and not in his divinity. So uh, then listen also to uh, the wonderful language he has about the cross, about being placed on our foreheads and so forth. It's really quite beautiful. Here we go with sermon number 28. C from Augustine of Hippo preached in 412. Pasio Domini et Salvatoris nostri Jesu Christi, fiducia gloriae est et doctrina patientiae. Quidenim non sibi de Dei gratia promitant corda fidelium, proquibus Dei filius unicus et patrico eternus parum fuit, ut homo ex homini nasceretur, nisi etiam manibus homini. The passion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ constitutes a guarantee of glory and a lesson in patience. What, after all, can the hearts of the faithful not promise themselves from God's grace, seeing that it was not enough for the only Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, to be born for them as a man, from man, without his also dying at the hands of men he created? 
It's a great thing that the Lord promises us for the future, but it's a much greater thing which we recall he has already done for us. When Christ died for the ungodly, where were they or what were they? Who can doubt that he is going to endow his holy ones with his life when he has already endowed them while they were still ungodly with his death? Why should human frailty hesitate to believe that it is going to happen sometime or other that men will live with God? Something much more incredible has already happened, that God has died for the sake of men. Who, after all, is Christ but that word which was in the beginning, and the word was with God, and the word was God? This word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, he would not have in himself the wherewithal to die for us unless he had already taken mortal flesh from us. That was how the immortal one was able to die. That was how he wished to bestow life on mortals, aiming later on to give us shares in himself, having first of all himself taken shares in us. I mean, we had nothing of our very own by which we could really live, and he had nothing of his very own by which he could really die. Accordingly, he struck a wonderful bargain with us a mutual give and take. Ours was what he died by, his was what we might live by. All the same, he too gave even the flesh which he took from us in order to die in it, because he is its creator. While on the other hand, he in no way received from us the life by which we are going to live in him and with him, and thus, as regards our nature, by which we are men, he died from what is ours, not his, since in his own nature, by which he is God, he is quite unable to die. But in so far as it is his creation which he made as God, then he did die from what is his, since he himself also made the flesh in which he died. So not only should we not be ashamed of the death of the Lord our God, we should even have maximum trust in it and a maximum pride in it, because in fact by catching from us and undergoing the death he found in us, he most faithfully engaged himself to give us life in himself, which we are quite unable to get from ourselves. I mean, seeing that he loved us so much, that without sin himself, he suffered for us sinners what we deserved for our sins. How can he, who thereby justifies us, possibly not give us what we have earned by that justice? How can he not pay the saints their reward, which he promised in truth, seeing that without wickedness himself he endured their punishment for the wicked? Let us then, brothers and sisters, unhesitatingly confess Christ crucified for us, and indeed publicly and boldly proclaim him. Let us declare it, not fearfully, but joyfully, not ashamed of it, but proud of it. The Apostle Paul saw him thus, and claimed it as a title of pride. 
He had so many great and divine things to remind us of about Christ, and yet he did not say that he took pride or gloried in Christ's miracles, or in his creating the world as God with the Father, or in his giving orders to the world even as a man like us. But far be it from me, he says, to take pride in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He could see who had hung on what for whom. And it was on that humility of God, that abasement of the divine majesty, that the apostle had the presumption to rely. These people, though, taunt us with worshipping a crucified Lord, and the cleverer they appear to be in their own eyes, the more incurably and desperately stupid they really are, failing totally to understand what we believe or what we say. I mean, we don't say that what died in Christ is what was God, but what was man. After all, when any man dies, that which is supremely human in him, which distinguishes him from an animal, that is, which has understanding, which can tell the difference between divine and human, temporal and eternal, true and false, that is to say, the rational soul doesn't suffer death with its body, but when the body dies, it withdraws, still alive. And yet, one still says, the man has died. So why may we not say, in the same way, God has died? Not meaning that that which is God can have died, but that mortal element which God had assumed for the sake of mortals. Because just as when a man dies, his soul doesn't die in the flesh, so too when Christ died, his divinity didn't die in the man. But God, they say, couldn't be mixed with a man, and with him become one Christ. Well, according to that crass and empty way of thinking, and such human opinions, we would suppose it to be much more difficult for spirit to become mixed with the flesh than God with man. And yet no human being would be human unless a human spirit were mixed with a human body. Yet to produce a human being, a human spirit, though it isn't a body, and a human body, though it isn't a spirit, have been mixed together. So how much easier must it have been for God, who is spirit, in order to produce one Christ for both, to be mixed in a spiritual partnership, not with a body apart from spirit, but with a man, had a spirit. So let us, too, take pride in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world may be crucified to us and we to the world. It was to save us from being ashamed of that cross that we placed it right on our foreheads, that is, on the dwelling place of shame. But now, if we were to attempt to explain what lesson in patience is to be found in this cross, or how salutary it is, what words could do justice to the subject? What time suffice for the words? Could anyone, I mean, who genuinely and seriously believes in Christ, have the audacity to be proud when God teaches humility, not only by word but by example? How useful this lesson is, though the following sentence from Holy Scripture briefly assures us, Before ruin 
the heart is lifted up, and before glory it is humbled. Which accords with that other text, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that other one, any who exalt themselves shall be humbled, and any who humble themselves shall be exalted. Accordingly, since the Apostle urges us not to have big ideas, but to go along with humble folk, we should consider as far as we can over what precipice of pride we human beings may tumble if we don't go along with a humble God, and how pernicious it must be for us humans to be impatient in bearing what a just God wills, when God was so patient in enduring what an unjust enemy willed. Nesimus alta sapientes, sed humilibus consentientes. Cogitet, si potest, in quantum superbie precipitium feratur homo, si non consenserit humilideo, et quam sit perniciosum impatienter ferre hominem, quod voluerit Deus justus, si patienter pertulit Deus, quod voluit inimicus injustus. Sermon number 218C by St. Augustine of Hippo on the Lord's Passion. It was preached around 412. And there are a couple things in here that I'd like to point out to you if you go back and look at it. You remember um, how uh, Augustine talked about uh, how Christ struck a wonderful bargain, is the phrase that the translator that I used uh, puts it, a wonderful bargain with us, a mutual give and take. Well, in Latin, that phrase is mirum commercium, and commercium is a, a loaded term in Catholic theology. It uh, indicates this incredible exchange, this magnificent give and take, as he calls it. But that phrase, give and take, he calls a mutua participatio. So we have commercium and participatio in here, and those words also can remind us of how we should be able to participate at Holy Mass. I always am going to come back to this when I find words like commercium and participatio, both of which show up very, very often in our prayers for Mass. Another very important thing uh, that I alerted you to before the sermon began was uh, his talking about our pride in the cross of the Lord, with which we are signed. It's placed right on our foreheads, as he says. That is on the dwelling place of shame, our forehead being the dwelling place of shame, reminding us that you know sins are really... Uh, problems of the will and the intellect. No, I mean, certainly we have a, a body uh, that's you know, weak in, in the flesh in a certain way, but it's really the, the sin, the guilt of the sin doesn't come from the body, it comes from our spiritual part. 
And uh, for Augustine, the sign of the cross is so important that he reminds people of this, uh, that, that uh, as Catholics we are signed with the cross when we are baptized, uh, we are signed when we are confirmed. Remember, holy chrism is used to seal us in the Lord as a possession of the Lord as he puts his seal on us. And also then we use the sign of the cross constantly when we pray and uh, when we go into churches, for example, with holy water. The sign of the cross is a very Catholic thing and we should always be using it properly and well because it's good for us and good for other people. That is, when people see us make the sign of the cross, they understand who we are and what we profess. So, therefore, we should never make it in a sloppy way or a furtive way or a way that's sort of embarrassed, or, nor should we neglect to use the sign of the cross, as so many uh, people, I think, are you know, a little reticent to do in public. But remember what's going on today, that how Catholics and... Uh, especially Catholics, are, are being driven from the public square as if they're not allowed to have a public opinion. Or uh, Catholic politicians who say that their Catholic faith won't have any effect on their public life. We can't allow uh, the voice of the church and the voice of good, solid Catholics professing their faith and living their faith to be marginalized. And making the sign of the cross can help remind us of who we are, but remind others also of who we are. So it strengthens us, and it can even evangelize or strengthen the faith of others. Well, because it's Holy Week and there's an awful lot to do today. As a matter of fact, this afternoon, uh, the Holy Father Pope Benedict is celebrating a Mass for the second anniversary of the death of John Paul II in St. Peter's Square. And I have to go over there and participate in that. And by the way, there was another Mass today at St. John Lateran held by Cardinal Ruini, who is the vicar for uh, the Pope here in Rome, for the Diocese of Rome. They concluded uh, the diocesan uh, portion of the process for beatification for for servant of God John Paul II, uh, as you might know, the uh, the uh, processes for Vatican, you know, like beatification and confirming miracles and so forth, need to take place in the place either where the servant of God died or where the miracle take, took place, and so here we have. Uh, John Paul II, who dies here in Rome. So therefore, uh, the diocesan process, it's the diocese that runs the process of the first process for beatification. And from here, now that it's closed, all the documentation that they gather will go to the congregation for uh, causes of saints. And they will begin to look at it. So anyway, there was a mass to close that up. So it's a momentous time. We have the Holy Father's 80th birthday coming, and the second anniversary is today of the death of John Paul II. Pretty soon we're going to be coming up on the anniversary of the election of Pope Benedict. This is a, a supercharged time here in Rome, especially with all the people here. There are rivers and rivers of tourists everywhere. 
and it's wonderful that they can uh, enjoy the city and especially have some good weather for it. But now I have to go. Come and visit at the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? You can read there and participate by making comments. God bless you for the rest of your Holy Week. 